Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Rotari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who hasn't quite figured out that cats and boats don't mix very well. Cats and boats, you gotta keep them separated. I am the Adam Glass, and uh, it's my it's my special Jean Vigo version of the Offspring song. <laughs> I'm going to replace all, it's all all of the original music in <laughs> Atlante. I'm going to replace <laughs> with a with a parody of an Offspring song. Oh dear lord! About not putting cats on boats. It's it could it could not be worse than what happened to Atalante <laughs> in real life. So that's okay. Probably not. Probably. I not. love the documentary where the guys like I don't see the guy like a uh, gourmet or whatever his name is is like I don't see what the big deal is. The song was popular. It seemed okay. <laughs> yeah. Like his ad his flippant attitude about it is just is probably the funniest thing about the entire thing. Like both funny and tragic. He's just like I don't get what the fucking big deal is. Like the song fits yeah. the the mu- fits the movie pretty well. Jeez, guys, why are you making a big deal out about this? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's I don't know you 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 shat all over a dead man's work. I don't know. It seems <laughs> seems maybe a little immediately bad. after he died. Yeah, like the moment he died, <laughs> yeah. you're like, I'm gonna take a big steaming shit on this. It's like <laughs> this doesn't seem good though, does it? It seems like a good idea to make a lot of money, and then but, it still but it didn't also make not a make money. any money, right? It's like I like it's. <laughs> Like the idea that you were going to save it by adding a popular song, naming it after said popular song, and doing the minimal amount of work to like fit it into the story is like, in fact, undermine the story by how you put it in. Before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Tell me more. Oh, I will. Every month we do a non-criterion film over there that our supporters vote on. Every month, except for December, as it turns out, since we do our holiday (laughs) special. (laughs) What you say, as it turns out, makes it sound like we didn't know. (laughs) We've only been doing this for 10 years. It surprised us as much as anyone else. It kind of does sneak up on us pretty much every year. It really does. It really does. Um, uh, If you listen to our podcast in order, uh, the previous episode you listened to would have been this year's holiday special. Uh, This is our final episode of 2023. How crazy. Uh, We've now been doing this uh, podcast for 11 years. Uh, Anyway. The um, podcast is significantly older than one of my children. Yeah. Yes. January through November, we do a bonus episode over there, and we let our supporters vote on it. One reason that we do the holiday special uh, the way we do it is, uh, one, I want it to be a surprise to the supporters as well. Two, uh, and a pat. it replaces our bonus episode and a regular episode <laughs> the way we release it. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, so it, it, gives us us a, a little, it gives us the holidays It gives us a little, little break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it gives us a break for the holidays that I really appreciate. Uh, so, yeah. Um Anyway, one dollar gets you access to all the back catalog of those bonus episodes. It gets you the vote. Uh, uh, oftentimes, user su- suggest lists, uh, and I'd love to use the user suggested list. All that access for one dollar a month. A little above that, though, for folks who can help keep us going. Uh, really appreciate them and love to thank them on air. 
our $5 supporters. Thank you so much to Andrew Jarrett, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Chris Otto. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized note to our $10 and above supporters. I'd also like to thank them on air, and thank you so much to Nina Bojnak, Patrick Yako, Jason Westhaver, Tracy McGrath, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters. If you want to see those postcards without committing that $10 mark or bypass postcards, you can head over to Redbubble. It is the holiday season. It is card-sending season. I'm just saying. It is card-sending season. Uh, Given that it is card-sending season, I guarantee Redbubble will not get them back from the time you hear this. If you order right now. (laughs) Right, since uh, it's the end of December. First first week of February. First week of February <laughs> but, at the but also I'm, I mean sure like let's it. be honest but, here if you're sending one of our cards as a holiday card yeah your family already has extremely low expectations of you also just in time for Valentine's Day oh yeah hey actually so, legitimately yeah. might be more appropriate I would say that yeah. we have more yeah. cards that are appropriate for Valentine's Day than we do for for Christmas or any other Honestly, sort of winter holiday best case. Best case scenario, you order them as soon as you hear this episode. You get them by Pat and I's birthday, and you could send Pat and I one for our birthday. That would be a really interesting experience to get one of my own cards as a birthday card. It would be really great, except I'm not giving any of you my address. Uh, No. I mean, I'll give you my address. Its chances of making it here in one piece are basically zero, so like, have at it. Oh, yeah. No. I've tried sending them to you yeah, before. They've like, they got like seven post-it stamps on them from like different countries and they're all mangled. Yeah. You can't read the writing on the back because at some point they were sent to like a washing anything. machine for some reason. Completely yeah. illegible. Yeah, it's, great. Yeah. it's great. It's beautiful. Uh, sending a postcard all the way around the world is not as clean a task as uh, that that Canadian children's movie where a child could put himself into a postage stamp that I can't remember the name of. What is this? <laughs> Pat's not going to remember no, it, so this it doesn't like matter. I don't want to get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> It does exist. I promise okay, it exists. I've watched say it recently. So, uh, I mean, you could have just but, had another fever dream. It's possible that it's a reoccurring fever dream. Thank you so much to anyone who has purchased anything off our Redbubble. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us on Patreon over the years. And thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. Pat, this week, uh, we are not only recording our final episode of 2023. Ever. The final also, episode of the podcast ever. We're stopping. We're we are not, right now. We're not stopping the podcast Surprise right now. announcement. Pat, we can't. I would say, uh, if we were to finish the podcast, finishing it on this film uh, may be appropriate. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of would be, but I think I still stand by, like, we get yeah. to 1,000 and we reevaluate our lives. We do, Maybe. Uh, we do the Godzilla uh, box set, and then we go, wait a minute, what are we doing here? We're both Maybe in our like, 40s. What are uh, we doing? Jean Vigo. Maybe like Jean Vigo will just die two weeks from now. Yeah, well, uh, we'll, we'll both have, like, Atlanta. but, like, we need to find some very, like, some some very money-grubbing person to, like, really shit on our legacy. We need to find somebody who will, like, then edit the podcast to, like, be something wildly different from one day. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Where are we yes. going to find that person? <laughs> we have to, we have to, know, we have to convince get... one of our, cur- our, our friends to be that person for us, just for, like, the yeah. artistic merit. Like, all right, Jonathan, I know you don't want to do this, but we need you to do this for our legacy. That'll mean the last creative thing I do in this life is record that Offspring parody, and I'm not sure I want that. <laughs> uh, we are finishing up our Jean Vigo box set, uh, Spine 578, the complete Jean Vigo. Uh, two weeks ago, before our holiday special, we covered Apropos de Nice, Zero de Conduit, and uh, 
Terry, uh, three of his shorts. Um, Zero to Conduit was narrative uh, and suppressed <laughs> because the critics of 1933 in France, uh, the critics loved it. The uh, the uh, establishment, the government, the censors. That's the word they, I was they looking for. They did not like it. Uh, they did, did not like the sort of uh, representation of authority uh, in that movie. Yeah. So, I mean, with the final for film me, apropos in the box Denise set, is still my my favorite thing we've watched. Actually, apropos Denise was I, wonderful. Apropos Denise yeah. is so yeah. neat. It's such it a really neat great movie. Yeah, uh, zero got onto it. I did love uh, apropos Denise. It's very neat. Um, but this week it's La Atalante, um, a movie I is... cannot pronounce to save my life. <laughs> I keep trying because I, I can't really just either. I can't stop saying Atlanta. I I, I know it's I know it's yeah. the same root and everything like that, but it, like it fucks me up. I just keep right. saying La- Atlanta, and I'm like, that's not right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this film was originally released in 1934. Uh, Vigo died very very shortly after completing production. Um, he did see a version of the film. Uh, perhaps the final, the 1934 released version of the film. Uh, however, it didn't sound after his like, death. yeah, like it does sound like, yes, he saw, he saw the one that the pre bastardization from what I understand, the film premiered for distributors, right? In April of 1934. Right. And, uh, Critics of the time, uh, who saw that version, uh, weren't. Here we go. Uh, not a critic. I think someone working for Gamon, Jean Pascal. Uh, I called the original cut a confused, incoherent, willfully absurd, long, dull, commercially worthless film. Uh, so Gamon, the production company, uh, took control of the movie, re-edited it, put in a just, just uh, fucking couple really of pop songs. fucked it up. It's so weird. Yeah. Uh, cut the runtime by what twenty minutes? Yeah, or so. And, and, and notably, uh, the description you get in that longer, like that that one documentary, which was really interesting, the one yeah. about like multiple films, like the multiple versions. Yeah, like made it incomprehensible, basically. Like edited it yeah. out so things just happen with no like antecedent that makes any sense. So you're just like, why is this thing happening? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> the because of that. Uh, the film was named after the song they put in as the main song, Le Chalon Qui Passe, The Passing Barge. Uh, apparently, music about barge people was very popular in France in the 30s. So my question, well, uh, I mean, yes just, and no, because the one was just made for the movie, right? Like the, the root song right, for right. the movie. But, but yeah, the idea that The Passing Barge was like the hit single that every all the kids were singing is, is a very, <laughs> yeah, funny, very yeah. funny idea to me. But. Right. Uh, so they put that in, re- replacing the original fake barge song that Vigo and company had written for the movie. Um, Very different tones there were songs, un- too. Like, it's worth noting. Yes, yeah. yes. Undermining, undermining uh, 
a plot point in the film that is hearing that song again that reminds <laughs> Juliet to go back, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so The Passing Barge became the release version of this movie. Uh, and yeah, the whole the whole thing's just very, very silly. Um, they released it under that name, hoping to bank on the popularity of the song, and that failed. And then the movie just disappears, basically, right? Like, I mean, it just basically ceases yeah. to exist until post-war. Yeah. Um, significantly post-war. Like, yeah, 1940s. Well... Yeah, like, but like, okay, it was so it did it did so show in Conduit the 1940s, and Atalante, like late forties as well. They both they both did get shown directly after the war. That's true. like Truffaut would have seen it. Uh, post, Truffaut says well, he saw it in nineteen forty six. Yeah, right, exactly. He would have seen that immediate, like po- not immediate, but pretty much immediate post war yeah. uh, reshowings, where they had a yeah. slightly fixed version that at least I guess took the shit music out and put the real music back in. But it still seems like it was kind of a mess. So, yeah, it's interesting to think that all of the new wave guys who were so profoundly affected by this movie, uh, by Jean Vigo's works, generally speaking, right? Truffaut, obviously, more. Truffaut saw this at the age fourteen, and it made him want to make movies. Right, exactly. Yeah, uh, this is his like, but the, the, Truffaut, the impetus, right? Yeah, Truffaut also um, obviously much more directly influenced by Zero for Conduct uh, that we talked about right. two weeks ago, the other Vigo film. Well, uh, it's like well, he sees <laughs> he sees this one and it like makes him want to make movies, and then he goes and watches because yeah. it was a double showing, right? He said yeah. he watched a, a double showing. Yeah, probably. Of this and Zero. And, well, in the interview with him, he mentions offhandedly that like they were showing yes. both at the theater he was going to. And so, right, right, even right. though this is yeah. his like favorite, Zero the Conda is like the one that he decides to essentially, in some capacity, sort of remake. Uh, not really, like it's not <laughs> yes. really a remake, yes. but it's the same basic kind of like core concept. In any case, it's it's fascinating that like that interview with Truffaut, and it's it's Romare interviewing Truffaut yeah. there. Even though Romare Romare's just asking questions, he's not really. He has some leading questions. Yeah, but he's not but really. He's really yeah, I mean, he's, he's talk. generally letting yeah. yeah Truffaut do the talking. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not a conversation by any means. Um, I was hoping it was going to be a conversation when we started, but <laughs> I was so was I actually. Anyway, uh, Truffaut sees to some extent the bastardized version of this, right? No, he absolutely you know, does because, fixed, but it's not because like yeah. if you like, they talk about legacy and some of that stuff and like there's, it's kind of a little hard to figure but like the 1940 restoration is, is essentially still the broken version of the film, but with the right music. Right. So that's my Truffaut understanding. And then as far as I could tell, like, cause that, 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 that one documentary, oh, I should have taken notes. I legitimately actually probably should have taken notes. I just didn't know I needed to until we <laughs> yeah. got into it. But, like, the one that goes through the different versions pretty much spells out exactly what happens in each one, like, pretty clearly, right? Yeah. And, like, the 1947 whatever version, 1940, late 1940s version is a restoration mainly of the music and a few, like, cut scenes. Right. 
we don't we don't get a full restoration to what the movie was until the 1990s. Right. And the 1990 version right. is like so like it's it is interesting I think that none of them saw the actual like original film basically. Yeah. Uh, which is which is fast is a is a fascinating like thought right. process about and the nature of film and stuff right like unlike non sequential artwork like you can't you can see only part and like it could still you so your version in your head could be a non complete version of it is the Kanaka version and then the the guy from Soviet Georgia saw a different version with cuts that weren't in the fucking one like they aren't anybody else's yeah. one because they use like rushes or some shit. It's fucking wild. He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, in my version, he runs into that haystack. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Now, the, the crazy thing about the 1934 cut is that Gamont puts out another, you know, their version of the film. Right. With the changed music and, the, and cutting it down to 65 minutes. But then studio uh, uh, cinema owners also cut it. Make yeah. further cuts. Right, and yeah. so people get these versions uh, that are just incomprehensible, right? Well, and it seems yeah. like, and it seems like just listening to that director—I forget his name—but like listening to that director, it does sound like the Soviet bloc got a different cut that yeah. had scenes that yeah. weren't in uh, the cut that showed in France, but also, like, it's like what? He's like, oh yeah, like it happened like this in my version. It's like, w- w- okay, <laughs> all right, yeah, cool, yeah. That is a uh, Soviet Georgian director, Otar. Uh, or something like that yeah 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 so it's like it's fascinating to think Um, that he saw a version that was even different than everybody else's version like we don't even find out which music he got he may have legitimately gotten the original well because like when they ship it to the so to the soviet block right like things are going to happen right like the version that gets shipped to the soviet block could have been the the 1930 whatever 34 version or whatever and so it's quite possible that he got like with the original music you know what i mean like who knows he doesn't talk about that but like things yeah. were weird like that yeah. that way back then, especially. Yeah, the interview with him is very fascinating. It is, it and is then of course, uh, somehow, uh, <coughs> cough Scorsese's time machine cough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. It's the nineteen ninety, the nineteen ninety restoration, uh, coincides with a rediscovery of an original print that had been lost for fifty years. Yeah, like well, uh, but even then, like I think, like I mean, I may be mixing up my stuff in my head now. But like it seems like the the rediscovery happened like way before 1990 though, and they just I think it happened it, for some reason I thought they said like 1950 or something is when they found it and then they just didn't oh maybe use it or something I don't know I I may have misunderstood that like there was a, there was a lot no, of I talk believe, about versions there was a lot of talk about versions I, according to according to Wikipedia which I'll use to to fill out some of the information from that documentary uh, that were. Forgetting. Oh yeah, here is like the um, British National Tele- Film and Television Archive. Right, yeah, uh, the BNFTA. Uh, no, the British National Film Television Archive had a copy that was discovered in the late eighties, and that's what was used. Okay, right. So for yeah, the nineteen ninety. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um. Oh, and then it doesn't exist anymore. A, Fantastic. Yeah. Um. And then uh. Our final cut, as of today, is a 2001 restoration of... Right. And at that uh, point, you're just, we're mostly just talking about like cleaning up the film stock and making it look good and doing just right. general restoration yeah. work, not necessarily um, 
changing right. things that much and that, anymore. That restoration was the, what Criterion puts out. That restoration was overseen by uh, Luce Vigo, uh, Jean Vigo's da- uh, daughter, who we heard from in the uh, documentary last week um, that we talked about. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's the the whole the history of it is it's it is just fascinating that like we and we even this isn't the first time we've encountered this, but it is a fascinating idea to think about that like countless successions of people have seen have essentially experienced a different version of this movie. Right. And it had different impacts yeah. on different ones of them, but like, yeah, it, it it's just this one might be a slightly more extreme version of that than we usually get. Yeah. yeah. Um, interestingly, there is uh, a 4K restoration that Gamon oversaw in 2017, uh, which presumably <coughs> it's not what we have. Um, uh, the Criterion uh, is not a 4K release. So uh, there is one more restoration already done that we could maybe get on a I mean, criterion release in the future. Yeah, my 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 biggest concern about that is is I cuz I I I was having trouble finding a lot of information about that is like whether or not um whether it got a physical release. Well, but also whether or not it was going to be to stick to if it's just a pure restoration that will stick to essentially the the cut of the film that we have here or if they're going to mess around with it uh they advertise it as the director's cut. So Okay. There's that at least. I mean Yeah. Uh it seems like Martin Scorsese's involved, so my guess is that he's going to try to keep it as close to the uh Yeah. Like just looking at a couple blog posts about it. So well, I mean, like since he did get in the time machine and go get it, like presumably right. he wants uh he would like He's got the original negative, so right, he can right. oversee that four K. <laughs> he may have killed John Vigo, we don't know. Um, <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Well, no, he? he might. It What's, might be like a sort of like like a paradox. Like it might be a yeah. paradox problem. Where he's like, oh no, I've messed up the timeline. I'm 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 both John Vigo's dad and I've killed it. I need to kill him. He's going to survive. Like I don't know. If I'm going to make this movie eventually, think, I want it to be really intense. Okay, that's what I'm saying. What What do you think Martin Scorsese saved us from by killing John Vigo? Hitler two Electric uh, Boogaloo. Oh no. He had to kill he had to kill Jean Vigo before World War II in order to avoid Hitler too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes sense. Well, because maybe there were two Hitlers. We don't know because we got saved from it, but maybe he, there was maybe there's double Hitler. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I don't like that. I don't like I those mean, it's, at all. It is it uh, is at least twice as worse as bad. I mean, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, anyway. Uh so so a lot of different uh cuts of this film over the years um but uh our criterion is still the most complete version that currently exists uh i do like the note on in that bonus feature that's the the history of the restorations uh the final note that it is maybe too restored okay that there are oh yeah the extra bits that like are, that Vigo was like I didn't yeah. want that in there <laughs> I don't want to see children yeah there abused. are bits in this film that Vigo had particularly noted that he wanted cut out uh, the only one that comes to mind is that uh, they noted a little bit where uh, Jules Michelle Simon's character kicks the cabin boy in the butt 
Yeah, and Vigo was pretty Vigo, adamant about the idea that he doesn't want to portray children being harmed under any circumstance. Yes. Yes, uh, which I appreciate. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. Though he still shot that. So. Yeah, I think it might be one of those but, things where he thought better of it later, right? Like, sort of thing. Right? Well, it also might be one of those things. There was a lot of improv involved. Right, with this right. Movie. Well, especially uh, with uh, Michelle Simon, is, with, was yeah. famous for, like, he describes mostly improving his bits in many ways, right? Yeah. Like, now, I mean, it, which is interesting because they talk a lot about how uh, Jean Vigo was a really meticulous director and, like, quite demanding of his cast in terms of, like, their performances, right? Like, they, they talk, they, the movies, right. like, the bonus materials give a lot of examples of, like, no, we had to shoot that 15 times because, like, he was, you know, something wasn't to his liking. But then, but then Michelle Simon also was just ad libbing a bunch of stuff. So it's like, right. It seems like maybe the rules were different depending on which member of the cast you were yeah well i mean in the sense that like michelle simon being like the only famous person in the movie maybe got a little bit more leeway than everybody else did yeah it's my understanding that simon and vigo got along really well right and that they both recognized that their source script was uh not the movie Tra- they wanted to trash make. yeah uh, that it was garbage yeah and uh as mentioned in one of the bonus materials uh which we talked about last week which was a 90 minute french television episode from what the 60s um, yeah uh basically the producer brought the script to vigo as a more commercial, commercially viable thing after Zero to Conduit lost him a ton of money. Right, <laughs> but he believed in Vigo. He wanted to. He wanted to do something. Uh, and according to him, he brought the script. Vigo didn't want to do it, and he said, "Sure, the story is banal, uh, but it all depends on how you tell it." Which got Vigo to at least agree. Well, to which do. is true, and right? Like it is Michelle's a Simon. it is a pretty yeah. banal story that is told in a pretty engaging way with right. some some interesting and, thoughts in it, right? Right. And stuff that is not in the script that Vigo is actively improvising. Uh for instance, uh the scene where uh Julieta is uh looking for work in Paris and is going to all of the different factories with uh, people lined up outside and no, and no jobs available. Uh, that's something that Vigo just decided to shoot one day. Got a bunch of extras threw a sign on a wall. Right. And, uh, and shot it. Yeah. It was really also at the whim of the weather. Uh, they had meant to shoot in the summer, uh, but it was late fall by the time they actually started shooting. Um, <laughs> and then they nearly killed their actors. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I I imagine just just the cold weather nearly killed. Well, that's their what actors I mean. It's like there's a description in that like, long documentary of like how they had to shoot yeah. diving into the water because by the time they get to that, they shoot mostly sequ- sequentially. By the time they by the right. time they get to um, the diving in the water scene yeah it's winter and they're breaking ice for yeah. him to dive in yeah. and it's like mm, this seems probably not great uh 
while they shot mostly sequentially, all the transitions were shot last. So like that's why all the transitions are sky shots. Right. Because there was actively snow on the ground. Uh there was ice ice on the river they were trying to shoot. They had to build a replica of the uh barge in a studio so that when the river was completely frozen over, they could still shoot. Right. Uh, it's a mess. I mean, the, the production which, of it's a mess, right? But Yeah, which meant that production was even more of a mess because that meant they wake up each day and Vigo would decide whether or not they were shooting outside or inside uh, right. that morning, right, based on how the weather looked. Um, cinematographer Boris Kaufman returns. Uh, we talked about him last week uh, because he shot Zero to Conduit as well. Uh, had been working with Vigo for a while. Um, he mentions that a lot of the improvisation stuff uh, were also just scripted scenes adapted to the weather. So Yeah, that does seem uh, to be a big part of it. Is, yeah, like, okay, well, now it's fucking snowing, so we have to, like, deal with this. Or right. whatever, or foggy, um, or whatever. The fog rolls in, or the light, it's cloudy. Um, you know, adjust the lights. Vigo preferred to shoot at night so that they could use the artificial lights. Um, shooting at night in the winter uh, and the stress of this entire situation and obviously the stress post facto when the studio was stealing his movie uh, exasperated the tuberculosis he'd been suffering for 10 years, I think. Yeah, something like eight, near 10, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it, it, this movie killed him, uh, very, very much so. Um, well, I mean, certainly shooting in the middle of winter, you know, even beyond the sort of like emotional strain of it, like it was probably yeah. just, just generally not good for his health. Right. Yeah. Like this is, we, we talked last week that Vigo was of the opinion that he knew he had TB. He knew his time was short. And he wanted to do everything he could before his time was gone. Uh, but it does seem like throwing everything into this movie the way he did, did exasperate. Right, uh, right. Yeah. The, the flip side of that is it's like how much, how much longer might he have lived had he not essentially yeah. like been, you know, just like killing himself in this, in the making of this movie. Right. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but, uh, yeah, it's still a beautiful movie. Um, I'm particularly struck uh, in in talking about how Kaufman says uh, they shot, they improvised with the weather. Uh, there was one scene where Gene uh, is looking for Juliette on the boat, and he's wandering the uh, the top of the boat, the top side of the boat. It's hard to call it a deck when it's actually curved. And <laughs> right, it's a roof. Uh, not really. It's, yeah, it's a roof of a barge. Uh, but uh, but he's wandering up there, and he's asking uh, Jules and the cabin boy if they've seen her, and she's just in the back in the fog in that scene, just sitting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Almost horror movie-like. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Yeah. It was really great. Uh, a lot of beautiful, a lot of beautiful shots in this, a lot of beautiful imagery. Um, the... The opening sequence uh, with the wedding, <laughs> uh, I really love. Uh, it also reminded me, I don't know if I've shared this before, but uh, Michelle Simon 
in the opening of that film, rushing around late late to his friend's wedding, uh, reminded me of the time our friend Kyle got married. Yeah. <laughs> and I I got waylaid because the wedding was in Washington, D.C., and we have another old friend who lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. Um, and uh, I had lunch with that friend, and that friend would not stop talking. Uh, so I ended up waiting. I ended up getting to Kyle's wedding as they walked out of the church. Well, it's the uh, ideal time. So, it's it's really yeah. actually the best time to show up to a wedding. It's like, yeah, I I opened the door and they were standing right there, and Kyle was like, "Oh, hi, Adam." I said, "Oh, let me let me be the first to greet you as Mister and Mrs." Um, uh, yeah, um, but yeah, uh. If I had had a bouquet of flowers, I probably would have dropped it into a river at some yeah, point. Yeah, and, and they've been yelled at because you didn't the way things were paper. going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just have been both of them yelling at myself for not wrapping it in paper. But yeah, the whole sequence of them walking out uh, and parading through the city back down to the boat. Uh, it's almost too subtle to be subversive. But I have to imagine that one of the things that turned people off, if they even caught it, is how Jean just climbs out on the boat and then pushes the boat off, and Juliet, to get onto the boat, has to swing out on the arm. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. It's so good that she does it. I love it. Uh, And then they collapse, and they're rolling, rolling on the deck, and she rolls onto one of the cats. It really freaks her out. It's really just the whole sequence is wonderful. Yeah, uh, everything about it, I love. Uh, it's just a yeah. It's it's fun. It is the the blandness, the banalness of the story is banal. Uh, it is a uh, barge captain marries a girl uh, who clearly thinks she's in for a life of adventure and travel. Discover she's in a, not in like a, she's what? essentially in for the trucker's lifestyle. Uh, yeah, trapped trapped inside the truck. Yeah, trapped, in the, the, trapped in the in the truck uh, with a bunch of cats. Uh, yeah, with a bunch of cats. Uh, her husband is violently jealous at times. Um, it does hit her at least once. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, uh, but then they ultimately do love each other, and she comes back. And yeah, I just have to imagine them rolling on the floor kissing was something uh, censors in 1934 probably were well, cool. Didn't on, they talk even about in France? And one of but, the things they talked about, like, um, oh, shoot, there was something in one of the documentaries that talked about that because, like, it they talk about you know the steamy scenes in the movie and like what got cut yeah. and stuff and like it does seem like yeah I think the Gourmet like cut like cuts out like some of the kissing and stuff I think right like oh some of the racier scenes yeah. it's like yeah and uh-huh. I think uh, <laughs> uh, I don't actually I don't certainly they're definitely talking about being... the scenes where they're dreaming about each other for sure because those are legitimately right. actually erotically yeah. charged but like I think they yes. also were talking about the kissing scenes because I think that in that that the, the different cuts thing at one point he talks yeah. about how like yeah they cut out like almost all the kissing basically yeah I also think we see a short clip from one of the rushes, maybe that uh, that isn't necessarily something that ended up in the film. I don't remember it in the film, uh, where the narrator of 
the uh, editing documentary uh, mentioned that it was a scene that was meant to be right before they argue about the radio. Yes, and yeah, yeah. What yeah. we see of that scene is the two of them getting dressed after having sex. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I imagine that was probably a no-no to the censors too. Right. But what do I know about French censors? Except what I learned last week, where they said basically every governmental department had, had the film, authority yeah. to censor something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gotta send it to the dog catcher now. I, I, I frankly, in its own like kind of weirdly grotesque way, I kind of like it because the idea that you could send it to so many agencies and by the time you got it, got it back, it was such a fucking like nightmare bastard version of the thing you wanted is like yeah. its own weird yeah. sort of art, like, like art de bureau or something like that, where it's like every, every, every bureau in the government has had like a small hand in this like now basically collage work yeah. is really funny to me. I don't know. I also just love that so many of the stories of censors in the 30s and 40s uh, are are less about the visuals and more particularly about the script. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's weird. Like, nobody bothers to check the fucking final movie. They only ever check the script and they, yeah, like, yeah. and are just checking it for, like, we- and, like, the things they check for are really weird, right? It's like, the, I keep getting going back to the fireman smoking under a no smoking sign thing. It's just like, yeah, it's yeah, just like yeah. it just like melted my brain thinking about it. And it was an example. It was like a hyperbolic example, but like, yeah, it's still derived right. from way, the way everybody saw the censoring system as like, oh yeah, we're just like worried about things that make us look bad. Basically, we're not worried right, about like right, right. like moral imperatives or like content in that way. We're just like we're trying to specifically not make our department look. It's it's frankly. The way the U.S. military operates its censorship system at this point, right? Like, basically, right? Well, yeah. It's, like, essentially the only body that still works that way, right? Is like, ah, yes, we're going to make sure that we always look good in every movie. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if more uh, more entities within the U.S. do operate that way. Well, I mean, I watched, uh, 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 do you know the, I think it's, I think it's the YouTuber Sarah Z, I think, or so, maybe, I forget which YouTuber, uh like, talked about how, uh, about, uh, the nose, the uh, the old like, oh yeah, she talked. Uh, they talked about the um, the episode of Buffy with the with the beer bad episode and like how it came to be through like an American like propaganda like initiative yeah. to like have television show television producers make m- movies to like stop kids from drinking. Like it, or, it was really yeah. strange. Like, but yeah. Yeah, this, they, there are yeah. there are these sort of probably it's just like the, the U.S. military is the most famous at this point, right? Because like, right, if right. you're going to have anything even remotely or U.S. military related in your film, they essentially have to approve your script. So it'll never say anything negative about the U.S. military at all. It's very I mean, French censorship thing. I uh, switch switching gears a little okay. bit. Going back to uh, the Shilang Kipas and the fact that French pop songs about people living on barges were so popular yeah, in the 30s. They're all the rage. Do you think uh, that that has to do with the fact that it is the 30s? Things uh, are bad everywhere. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, it's kind of like the hobo lifestyle thing, right? Like it's it's the yeah. Hop on a train yeah. and no, get the fuck I'm, out of town, right? Like this place sucks. What life is? What bad. I'm getting at is it's not even it's not even just that, but no one owns the water. No one owns right. The it's, it's it's non enclosed commons, so, right? Like you you can like be on the yeah. water and just be right. Yeah, like yeah. Now, mind you, the only way to exist on the water. Well, so there's a couple of things happening here, right? Because there's a, a couple of different things, right? Because in order to be on the water, you primarily have to work for one of these boat companies. So it is enclosed, right? It is it is owned. Yeah. Bear, but they also mention in one of the documentaries because it's just so fucking many um, that like they're dry. Their 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 boat is passing by things that are non-affiliated entities. Like people had set up like free form, like freestanding like shops and stuff on the water because yeah. it's not owned by anybody, right? Like they they like right. they mention like people who had essentially like homesteaded the water to like sell food and stuff. Which you do see in other places, right? Like you do see floating shops as a thing in, in anywhere right. where that has that where the river can support it, right? Um I think that's part of it. Uh I, I also think it's just like it is I think a bit of the hobo thing of like well like of escapism you, you yeah, well and of, also you just have to keep moving to right travel. like there are no jobs yeah. so you're constantly like on the prowl for jobs and the water represents a sort of like a way to do that for free right in a way right. that that the yeah. um that the, even the trains don't um uh, and then I would also say that um shoot I had another idea it it it's also like it's in like the way it's in song is sort of like um it's a sort of very romantic notion of like like yeah you know constantly like oh see the world right in many ways the only way the song is somewhat appropriate for this movie but not in the way i think the movie want, uses it the the um the, the fake song the bad song the one we're talking about uh, i can't pronounce it so yeah. i'm not gonna try but like in the sense that there's a, a kernel of the way it could be used in the sense that, like, it represents the way that Julietta saw the life on the barge prior to being on the barge as this sort of romantic, like, see see all of France through the barging lifestyle uh, sort of notion that the song represents is the way she saw it. So you could actually work the song into the movie. You just have to do it, like, like during the wedding scenes. Or something, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like her her sort of idealized um, version of this world. It turns out to not be true yeah. at all. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the possibility of like a, a anarchist flotilla just live in houseboats. Uh, I mean, it's happened <laughs> could before. That still be possible, uh, but yeah. Then I realized, no, that's like a libertarian. Well, so the problem city, is, is that a floating city in right, international waters. The only <laughs> people who the 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 problem is, is that like. The idea has come from both, like both sides of the sort of the aisle. Right, but right, right. but given the sort of power structures of the world at this point, like the only people who can afford to do that are rich assholes, basically. Right, right, and so you end up with these like weird sort of libertarian, free city states things, where really what it just comes down to is probably probably pedophilia. <laughs> basically, is the primary motivating uh, system is probably pedophilia. So you know. That's fucked up. <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. No, that's like cool. in my mind, like because well, so like when I was growing up, right? Like when we were growing up, my mind when I thought of 
like international waters, by a direct association, well, it must be a drug thing, right? Because that's what we were taught, right? Yeah. And it's completely right. shifted over the last ten years to be like it must be a must be a pedophilia thing. Like I why mean, why are you going to international it. waters? It's probably pedophilia. Used to be it's probably drugs. Now it's probably pedophilia. I mean, I it's think probably I both. Think generally, speaking, it's probably just both. Gener- probably always has generally been speaking. Both. Generally speaking, anything I hear about libertarians gets it's probably that a pedophilia thing. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, you are interested in the age of consent, aren't you? That's a that's a weird thing to think about too much, isn't it? The 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 only law we need to work around. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, just people people. People loving songs about barge people. It's a fascinating uh, phenomenon, but like it's just fascinating. But yeah, period. but then but again, yeah. like U.S. similar time frame, we are like there is a fair amount of music made about like, like kind of oh, yeah, hobo yeah, yeah. lifestyle, right? About like the idea of being free, oh, absolutely to like leave yeah. and go, and so it's like oh, it's basically the same impetus, just a different mode of transport. Because maybe yeah. French, I don't know what the deal is with French trains at the time, but maybe you can't you can't just like hop on them. And go places. Uh, well, I'll, I'll remind you, we did watch Le Bet Humain. Uh, it, all of the trains, all of the trains were currently being occupied by uh, uh, Jean Renoir right. making, making right. Le Bet Humain. Right, it's like, it takes a lot of trains. <laughs> no, I need I need every train so that Jean Gabin can race me. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, I love that movie. I yeah. do. I just I love everything about that about them just being obsessed with the trains. It's really great. Uh but yeah. Um <laughs> There's a lot uh Vigo gets an opportunity to be a little part- be a little political in this movie, right? It's not it's not as overtly political as say Zero de conduit was. It's not even as overtly political as Apropos de Nice was. Well, I mean, Apropos de Nice uh, is pretty. Like, is, for a silent film, is about. It as might be the most. Poli- yeah, it yeah, is definitely. It the might most be the most political of sure. his any of his work. Yeah, I guess that's fair. in the sense that it doesn't uh, have a story in, in really a, a full sense. Yeah. It can just be vignettes of political statements. So right, right. So we get we get vignettes of political statements here to a certain extent. Extent. Uh. uh Michelle Simon's character here is very similar to Badu uh, from Badu yeah. Saved from Drowning. Uh, obviously, Badu influences his portrayal here, uh, being the pre-existing work. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, Michelle Simon is cho- is yeah, it's all connected, right? Like, and when, it's, it's as chosen essentially because as we, of that, right? Yeah, as we talked about with Badu, Simon himself is sort of avant-garde in a vaguely right libertarian sort of way right um, he's uh yeah um here he still represents some sort of hobo freedom uh and what what juliet experiences in the city when she gets lost in the city uh, you know, it's almost Pinocchio in a way too, right? She's tempted to the city by the by the the salesman who is himself a 
a weird parody of a salesman. Like he gets the one musical number. Well, one of the two musical numbers. I mean, in he the gets movie. the best one. Yeah, and his song is. Uh, <clears throat> His song is like a music man or uh or a Mary Poppins song about a But about but a for seducing really. women in a bar. <laughs> but, but yeah. It's very yeah. strange. And it's all it's all about how all this is garbage and you should buy it and let me kiss you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's re- it's a yeah. really weird song. I like and I and, think they talk about like in multiple places they talk about well we we just like basically just thinking of of rhymes like like just yeah. any anything that rhymes, like it's like it doesn't matter. Like it's just it can be as stupid as we want. It's just it's gotta just be a parody of a song, essentially. Right, right, and a parody of a very particular just commercial song, commercial pop folk song, uh, the kind that gets superimposed onto the movie later. Right, but uh, but making it directly about commercialism. <laughs> Is is part of the parody right, right. of that, right? It is a song about buying things. Anyway, she gets seduced away into the city. Well, it's, it's fascinating because, uh, like, it, it, there's some debate, like, it seemingly about, uh, yeah, because, like, she doesn't necessarily she, seem she does. It's it's unclear. Like, of course, Jean like is a fucking super jealous asshole yes. who just assumes she ran away with the guy, right? Immediately, right. that's his. She does not leave the boat. Yeah, she does not leave the boat to actually. She just go find wants the to guy. go to the city, which she has been denied. She just wants to go to the city multiple times, right? Her her jealous yeah. husband just fucking freaks out, basically, and assumes she's right. run away. Um, right. But the city she experiences is a politically real city, <laughs> uh, to the time period, right? Um, and not just you know what we've already talked about with her looking for work. And joining the the unemployment lines, uh, but uh, the scene where her purse is stolen, and uh, and the action continues. We see we see the guy steal her purse. He immediately drops her purse, but then he gets beat half to death by a crowd of people and the police. Right, right. Uh, while while she, the victim of this crime. Is still left to her own devices, right? It's and all about it's again about, all by about, someone else, right? It's all about extracting <laughs> vengeance. It has nothing to do with the actual like victim of the crime yeah, or, no the, justice, or the perpetrator right. of the crime or anything. It's all just about extracting yeah. vengeance on like on this young man who like we're seen as we're his portrayed as being extremely like like in bad shape right like he yeah. needs if, he needs right. money right like he's not stealing because right. of like for thrills or some shit it's not that one weird yeah. pickpocketing movie that we watched at one time like it's like he's stealing presumably for, like, he's skinny as a rail like he's like he's bad yeah, like absolutely and then they just beat him like basically to death yeah yep yeah <laughs> although my favorite yeah. thing about that actually is the fact that the station master just like does nothing about it like, yes. literally, like, it's stolen, like, literally right in front of him. And he's like, eh, whatever. Next. <laughs> Basically. Happens all the time. <laughs> this is how this works. Yeah. Welcome to Paris, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Can, uh, yeah. can you move the line along, please? <laughs> like, I got tickets to sell. Yeah. Uh, well, and the fact that, like, the movie gets very politically real about the idea that, like, all she needs to do is get from one town to another. Right. A seemingly trivial act, right? Which right. she is 
she had the ability to pay for it, presumably before she was going to buy a ticket. That she comes into contact with somebody who is also in need, who has stole uh, steals presumably to deal with need, right? And then that breaks right. her ability to do what she needs to do. And you get into this like cycle of like, well, now she needs to go find a fucking job. Like that's insane. Like she just wants yeah. to go from this city to this city, and she has to try to find a job to do it. Like, yeah, what what kind of shit show of country are you running here that you can't like, like a person <clears throat> just can't get from this city to this city, like well, it's without the, having to know, find it, a job first? It's crazy, right? Well, I mean, obviously, it's the real world. It's exactly how the world works. I'm not saying it doesn't. It is exactly how the world it's just, works. But it it's also insane, one bad right? thing pers- happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One bad thing happens, and she's living on the street. Right, right, and the uh, and the movie is directly is... engaged with, and, and that it's a fairly political thing to do if you can't like directly do politics, right? right? Like if you can't like straight up just like have a person look at the camera and tell you how bad things are, you d- like this is yeah. pretty political, right? Like, absolutely. And then we also yeah. kind of have to wonder, like to my mind, like I think there's something a bit sinister about the ending of the movie, in the sense that like I we don't we're not really told that. That especially he, the husband, Jean, has learned any lessons or anything necessarily, right? Yeah. I mean, he sees her face in the water when he's going to drown. So, like, so maybe he, like, discovers he really does love her or some shit like that. But, like, he's he's abusive and, like, wildly yeah. jealous. We don't, I don't believe that's gone away now. We don't see yeah. any personal growth with regards to that. And so you kind of get into this idea that, like, in my mind, I can't let go of the idea that she's so happy to be back, not because she desperately loves him and this is a good situation for him, but at least now she doesn't have to fucking live on the street, right? It's more of a, like, right. like yeah, I'm so relieved to be back because, like, I had to encounter a world that was going to just let me die on the street. And at yeah. least here I'm not going to um, die on the street. Not to, not to get hyper second-wave feminist uh, in our interpretation of this, but also the final image of the movie is uh, the barge, the very phallic barge in yeah. the darkness of the river. Uh, you know, she she gets back in, she runs to him, they kiss, they're rolling on the hay, and, or rolling, they're rolling on the floor, and then we cut to the outdoor shot of the barge uh, Which <laughs> moving is, in the water. Which uh, is, mind you, uh, is a it, shot specifically requested by Jean Vigo, like, in his, on right. his deathbed, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are, there are various ways to interpret that final image, certainly, but one as, uh, male sexual violence is, well, there's <laughs> a, there's a male sexual uh, violence thing that could be interpreted there. There's also a sort of like, you could also do a different sort of reading where it's like, well now, like it is quote unquote kind of unusual that they haven't had children yet. Right. So like, yeah. So like, or even like sort of seemingly she's not pregnant. Right. Like, so like. Oh, there's also right. a reinterpretation of like now she's going to be locked in. Like it's going to be, we're gonna we're, this 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 whole system is going to be completed, wherein like now it's impossible to leave. Essentially, the what has happened right. will become fundamentally impossible because she'll be tied to it via the children. Right, is uh, a whole sort of yeah. other way to sort of see that, which is also a form of sexual violence. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like there's different ways to to even understand that so- that shot. I think, uh, right. It's also possible that if you yeah. don't take it that way and you just even pull out, you get this sort of like arrow view of this like, 
look at this barge and how sort of stranded in the river it is, right? This sort of like this little weird island of humanity that has like some right. connection to the real world but doesn't. And even even it, barring all those other interpretations, she's still back on the place where she's stranded. Right. Like where she's stuck. She can't go anywhere. They're on the river now. You're just fucking here you are. And like it's a uh, it's kind of like the uh the sort of like not to take a really weird left turn, but it's like the uh it's always sunny in Philadelphia episodes where they talk about the implication of the boat, right? And how like fucked up right. that that whole concept is, right? And this movie is kind of engaged with that idea that like once you're on the boat, you're on the fucking boat. Yeah. Um now imagine the implications of its entire floating city, Pat. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah. Yeah. Circle circling back. For circling a circling um, back to the it's yeah. probably mostly about pedophilia. <laughs> Where it gets a little complicated is that simultaneously on the boat, Jules is a representation of the freedom of the boat, right? Right. Uh, he's uh, he's vaguely hippie-ish. He travels a lot. He's had yeah. Lovers he's like I guess you would call him call all around the world, right? At this point, right? Yeah. He's he's, he's, he's got a hand in a jar. Uh, apparently, there's two hands got in a, a jar. We only talk about one, but apparently, the guy who had a hand in the jar had two hands in a jar. Yeah, yeah. According to the documentary, uh, he's like they only use the one, but that's so good. I love I love Jules' line about it, how it's the last thing. Yeah, how his friends always with him. Uh it's very a very fun way to work that in. Uh do not want to think about where the hand actually came from. Yeah, I anytime uh, there's a body part atta- detached from a human being and it's just like hanging around, it makes probably me real bad. skittish. Like it's possible it's not. We've, like let's be very clear here. Yeah. It is always possible that it's not, but nine out of ten times, it's something real fucked up. It wasn't that long ago we had an extended conversation on the podcast about the Mutter Museum. Yeah, uh, uh, and its well, and, I, and I've yeah, parts, I've been it's so. a thing I've thought of, like I've had read <laughs> yeah. and like engaged with multiple pieces of media that have talked about things <laughs> in that sort of yeah. wheelhouse quite recently, and so it's like, ugh, oh, yeah, ugh. it's fucked up shit, man. Again, yeah. the best um, the best version of it is like basically Jules's story is is at least semi accurate and it's like it is actually a gift. Uh, yes, but, but you know, probably not. Right. I right, mean, right. he has all kinds of weird yeah. shit. Like he his his room is just full of like random trinkets, and then they they talk in the documentary about how that's all sort of assembled from like just yeah weird whatever weird shit they can find at the last minute. Uh, right, right, right. Just throw it together. Um, the uh, the original script, Jules has a dog. Okay. A single dog. I feel like a dog. Okay. Uh, so here's the thing. Is certainly the cats are a better choice as far as making the movie kind of fucked up and weird, right? The cats yeah. are sort of ever ever present, like kind of invasive in their nature, right? The dog is a much more normal pet for them to have and like makes more sense. Yeah. As a boat companion, <laughs> but but yes, like, uh, <laughs> certainly as a boat, but like <laughs> something that's not afraid of water. Yeah, I don't know though. Uh, maybe maybe the cats as a metaphor for Juliet in the stance you were you were going oh, for absolutely. a minute ago yeah. of, of being trapped, being right? trapped, and then uh, sort of stuck in this very weird infinite breeding cycle too, which is real like kind yeah. of a sort of secondary element. Right? Like the first time they one of the now, first of times course, they encounter the cats is like not the first time, but like one of the major encounters with the cats is like it's had its babies in their bed. Yes, that feels yes. like it's a it's a, like a gesture at something, well, doesn't it? The the first time she encounters the cat, 
is when they first kiss on the boat right. and she rolls over on right, it. Right, right, right. I'm just and saying, like, the one of their first sort of, like, the cat. they're, like, one oh, yeah. of their no, most the major cats... encounters is the baby, the cats having babies yeah. in their bed. Cats, cats as... <laughs> The cats as a sexual metaphor in this movie is not something that doesn't exist. No, that's exactly. So, that's what I'm uh, saying. It's like, yeah. like Vigo made some choices here. Seemingly, yeah. the way the the rest of the staff and like the the crew talk about in the documentary about the cats, like, well, he's very insistent on the cats, as though they don't understand necessarily why he was so into the cat idea. But like, <laughs> he makes very clear and specific use of the cats and the sort of nature of cats. The only thing that would be more on the nose is if for some reason he kept fucking rabbits. But like, um, yeah, that would be uh, weird. That would be from, too far. And then they would just eat. From them. what I've read as well, from what I've read as well, uh, Vigo's insistence on the cats is also in tribute to his father, right? Uh, Miguel Almeida, um, Vigo's dad was uh, saving saving stray cats was a a thing he did, right? right. Um, and from what I read, uh. Michelle Simon adopted one of the cats uh, after filming. Oh, well, I'm fascinated so. by a lot of that because they also describe like how they got all the cats. Like, and they like because I always I always forget initially that uh, what is it? Um, oh shit! Now I forgot the word again. There's a French word that like we use in English as a very specific meaning, but like in French is just like dude who helps out around town. Like, <laughs> fuck, what's the word? Uh, okay, um, in- concierge, concierge, yeah. Concierge. There you go. Yeah, I, I was going to say until until you had a definition out, uh, that could have been the the English use of any French word. I I, uh, I understand that. I understand so, that. But I was thinking of it because they talk about like getting all the concierges to like hunt for cats, and yeah, which is like again concierge having a very different meaning in English than it does in French with regards to like what that job actually is. But um, yeah. But then the idea that like one of the concierge says it's kind of hard because they're not in season right now. The, the, the phrase is just um, very. I understand what he means, and they're not talking about. But yeah. the way the English gets translated, it sounds like well, you know, it's not currently cat season. Uh, is is a very like it's just being like they don't have a lot of babies hanging around right now. Like they're not. It's the wrong time. They're they've not. All the babies have grown up. We won't hit another sort of cycle until you know next whatever spring or summer or whatever right but like but the idea that there's like a well we've left deer season now we're in cat season is uh in english specifically a very funny idea to me um yeah but yeah the, the idea that uh, they had to collect these cats from like everywhere to make it work yeah a uh, fun fact about the etymology of concierge one yes. of the suggested origins is the latin conservus meaning fellow slave that makes sense. I mean, it really. I mean, like, yeah. legitimately, like the way and the way it's used in French is much more akin to that than right, it is the right. English Just, version, right? The English version at this point has yeah. gone so far afield of that. Uh, whereas, like, anytime we watch a, a French film that like gives us a really hefty documentary, eventually the sort of concierges are mentioned in the sort of making yeah. arrangements for like everything. Um, yeah. Apparently, the cats. On while well, we're on the cats, apparently the cats just. Uh, were naturally drawn to the phonograph. Oh, like, interesting. I missed that part. Yeah. The scene yeah, the scene of the cats around the record player are uh are just they hit play on the record player and that's what the cats did. That makes so, kind of makes sense. So they right? just recorded it. Yeah. It's kind of a weird yeah. little like object of curiosity, right? Even for humans, right? Well the thing the other thing yeah. I, the thing about the cats, okay, like I've I love that the cats are like now our main thing. Uh is yeah. 
at one point they're talking I forget, again there's so many documentaries they're talking about like his meticulousness yeah. and they're like well and then this scene the the cat flubbed its entrance and I'm like that's a that's a weird <laughs> phrase I feel like the cat could like either do or not do that uh, but okay sure if you say so. I don't know about the cat flubbing its entrance given how often the cats are just thrown from off screen exactly like, exactly but like yeah that's like it's what he says like well, well they had to reshoot the, this one Bruce was shot because the cat missed its entrance or whatever flubbed its entrance and I'm like okay like these are not trained cats you didn't go to like an animal handler no. you just essentially got a bunch of like dudes to, like pick up cats off the street like I don't you know what you were expecting. Your you only answer is chucking on the screen. At actors. Yeah, you just yeah. throw the cat at <laughs> the actor, and/or like maybe hide some food somewhere, but that's not a guarantee. You're not. Yeah, I. I do love the one moment in the film where uh, where they're seeming to make reference to the fact that they've been throwing cats around the entire film, is uh, that Jean in his in his depressed stupor uh, is still beating Jules at checkers but jules has a system with the cabin boy yes yeah where he just gives gives the signal and the cabin boy throws throws a cat on the board and, and jules is like ah oh, man and i was about to win <laughs> yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. it's a very it's all very like there's like it's there's weird bits of comedy in this movie that like seem almost like meta like meta comedy yeah or somewhere yeah. like where you've got like jules sort of acted like um as a character sort of actively commenting on <laughs> the movie itself it's it's that's one of the better ones but there's like almost anything that's like engaged with his trinkets in his room is kind of that way yeah. like the scene is like what's this a picture of it's like oh, me as a boy it just feels like a meta commentary on the weird shit they found to like fill yeah, the room yeah. with yeah it's it's yeah as though like he's you know obviously the actor is very well aware of where all this shit came from and then this right. idea of like well i'm going to engage with it as though i kind of my character also kind of doesn't know where any of this came from or why we have it. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in that moment, he's also trying to not necessarily diffuse the situation. Right, but, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> certainly absolve it. I was really fascinated in some of the stuff Truffaut had to say, uh, particularly around talking about other directors about about Vigo's contemporaries now of course he's being particularly tasked to talk about Vigo in this instance right uh it is the early 60s uh I mean and this is like has this is like Romero's doing this like like kind of like almost seemingly like tv series film series or something like where he's introducing people to various films right because they're like we've just you know They've just, like, we or they, I forget which phrase he uses, like, just watched yeah. La Lantala or whatever, you know. And then before that, yeah, we yeah, were, yeah, like, yeah. talking about, like, how they're all connected to Lumiere or something like that. It's, like, it's it's a weird series anyway, seemingly. And, like, Truffaut's just yeah, doing an yeah, interview as a part be. of it. Like, public yeah, access part TV of something. or something, maybe. Yeah. So, so the bit I'm particularly interested in is when uh, Truffaut describes Vigo as singularly the only real avant-garde filmmaker working at the time. Uh, and that everybody else was either a painter, uh, presumably making reference to Renoir there, 
Well, I mean, but uh, like a Renoir... painter just messing around with film, right? Obviously, Renoir's father was the painter, right? But, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Renoir's not still... really avant-garde, right? Renoir's Renoir's more more mainstream. He's right. doing Renoir's... some interesting yeah. things politically every so often, but, but it's primarily making um, like studio style films, generally speaking, basically. Yeah, yeah. But as far as avant-garde, I I mean, he could be. He calls out Cocteau particularly as someone who is just an artist with a rich patron messing around. Uh, and, and after 11 years, Truffaut justifying my opinion of Blood of the Poet. Uh, thank you. <laughs> we only took that. We just had uh, to find this one interview. Had to find. Why didn't you, Criterion, why didn't you throw that one on back then? Uh, we could have avoided that really dumb episode, episode like 12 of the podcast, uh, where we just read Cocteau's own uh, own uh, notes about one of his movies. I can't remember which film it even was. Right. And just responded to his essay about the making of the film. Yes. Paragraph by paragraph. <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely uh, something I'm glad we got away from and only did that once. But well, uh, it was a special yeah. circumstance because the the interview was or the the, the article <laughs> so was so fucking weird and, and sort of stupid. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Truffaut writing off Cocteau as as just an artist messing around because he had rich <laughs> rich people. Now, to be him. fair, the it's good really news great. is is uh, that we finally have looped back around to the movie I was trying to think of like two weeks ago when I was trying to yeah. make a reference. Like I was like, it's a silent film. There's a statue. Some weird shit happened. Oh yes, yes, yes. It is that blood is of the poem. Yeah, uh, which is good. It is it's good to know what that was. Um, and you're right; yeah. it was just fucking around. But like, but here's the thing: it was like, I, I kind of want to like argue with Truffaut too, because like, what does he think avant garde is? Right, right, right. Like, right, yeah, the amount of money you have is not directly connected to whether or not it's avant garde or not. Funding sources, it is in in a sort of tangential way, right? Because like. The amount of money you have will, will directly like implicate the politics and stuff in the way you talk in film, right, or in whatever work you're mm-hmm. creating, right? Yeah, your access to money, your your ability to like where you fit in the social hierarchy and all that stuff will definitely play into your quote unquote the work you're making. But it doesn't make it less avant garde, right? Like it, it like just sort of looking at the sort of root meaning of the word and everything like that, right? Like, um, I mean, I guess you could argue it does. In the sense that, like, well, you're not you're not going to go against the status quo if you are beholden to it, and you, but like we all are right. uh, fundamentally, we all listen, live in a capitalist like hellscape. We're all beholden yeah. to the system, no matter how much money we have. We all need it to survive, right? So it's um, absolutely. I don't know. It's just like it's weird, that, like to connect your avant gardeness to whether or not you're a real filmmaker or. Painter fucking around. I don't know. It's like seems like that's yeah. what Avant Garde. Yeah, I imagine. Is. I imagine Truffaut is also in that moment making reference to, uh, say, Lichien Andalou, right? Uh, with uh, with Dolly's entry into film, right? I think that um, that could, yeah, I, that would make a lot of sense too, right? Yeah, though you know, Lichien Andalou is also you know a, a co-work between Dolly and. Buniel, um and Bunel keeps making movies. Uh, and I, w- France, I would argue but... that Bunel also is is fairly <laughs> avant garde when it all comes down to <laughs> yeah, it, right? Like right. I think it's a fair right. fair statement. I mean, 
like what it is is that we're too early for um for Truffaut to have seen any brackage is what it is. He hasn't really <laughs> well, he hasn't course, encountered yes. true true avant garde yet. Uh, well, you know, to to Truffaut's mind, he is the avant garde, right? Right. And, well, exactly. And, that's part yeah, of it, right? Is it like Truffaut? Yeah. Truffaut needs to build it, and like Truffaut's pretty pretty famous for this, right? But Truffaut builds a narrative about himself, right? And he watches this movie. It informs his actions, and he's he's the height of avant garde. So therefore, the thing he liked when he was fifteen must have been avant, like the height of avant garde, right? Like it's that sort of self myth making where you're like, well, I I have the best taste, so the things I like must be the best. Not that I'm disagreeing that like La Avant, uh, La not 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 the other movie I was about to say on accent. Uh, La Andalante. The Andalou. No, I was gonna say La Aventura oh. because like anything that starts with La, like it's oh, yeah, my yeah. brain starts to melt. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yes, La Antalante does... is um yeah is 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 it is avant garde. It's not not avant garde. I'm not trying to argue it's not, but it right. is also, you know, it's like I don't think you could argue that it's the only avant garde movie ever made prior to like Truffaut making movies, right? Yeah, uh, he he particularly says that. Uh, The inheritance of the Atalante uh, is breathless. Breathless is the first work that really that really follows that, and that's Godard from right. <laughs> from nineteen sixty, right? Um, yeah, uh, and and he makes reference in in talking about speaking of La Aventura, uh, he he does make reference to Antonioni. As uh, as an inheritor of that as well, um, I don't know. Uh, it's just given how many insults, backhanded compliments, and interesting connections Truffaut makes in in just that video, uh, the man definitely had a very particular way of looking at movies that we've obviously known, right? right? Yes, uh, but what just this distills it uh, in a really interesting way. I'm. I'm happy to have watched that. Uh, there is a lot of bonus material on these discs. There <laughs> is a lot. Well, so like you and I were chit-chatting a little bit before we started recording. And like one of the things that like strikes me as a bit odd about this bonus material is that like it does more so than like we've encountered this before when we've had like the complete sets, right? Like, um, like well, this is all you're getting. So like we're going to give you a lot. But like, I you know as we've been talking, I don't my my opinions shifted a little bit about it. But even then, like a lot of it felt a little bit like a little unnecessary, right? Like, uh, but also like a weird thing that they didn't do, which is like striking to me, is that like typically when we get one of these box sets, especially for like so or even like a movie that's like this sort of quote unquote important to the so the film landscape. We usually mm-hmm. get like modern, like some interviews with people from like relatively modern directors talking about the importance of the movie. We get right none of that here at all. Yeah, there's there's no famous director, no famous producer, or anything like that talking about the Truffaut is the closest thing we get, and that's a an interview from the 1960s. 
And right. it, it's really a curious phenomenon because what it kind of in my mind tells me, and I, this could be totally wildly inaccurate, in my mind it tells me that those interviews don't exist because Criterion would have just gotten them. Right? You'd think, yeah. Because they wouldn't have been hard to get. They would have been like interviews or they would have just like called up people who famously like, my my impression is that Criterion will just like call up famous directors that they have like relationships with and like, what do you think about this movie? And like to not right. have that anywhere on the DVD starts to make me wonder if the things just don't exist. So why is that the case? Okay. And yeah. the, the conversation. Well, it's obviously. No, go ahead. Please. Oh, no, no. I, I like my, my, my thought process on this is the reason these don't exist is that we're talking about a movie essentially out of time. We're watching something that, like, I don't know. It was very important for a very specific set of new French New Wave directors and Italian and, and uh-huh. some other. But, like, but maybe not as impactful as, like, we want to believe in that way. Like, doesn't its impact isn't really as broad as, as they would sort of it would lead you to believe. Like, if you ask just a random, mm-hmm. like, well-known director like how what do you think about you know like how do you feel about it they might just be like i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) or uh i watched it it's fine and that it's specifically a french new wave thing that this movie like blew their mind and obviously it's some time and place things because i don't know how many revivals of this film got made post late 1940s between the year like 1947 and 1990 when it gets re-released as a as a fixed up like proper cut i don't know how many how many you know how many revivals it gets like our our young directors seeing this film as sort of a part of their their sort of a curriculum of like film you need to see to be a good director kind of thing i don't i don't know but it is fascinating that they just don't have any of that material here and uh yeah yeah the conversation you and I were having was something to the effect of like, I wonder if it's sort of a generational problem here in the sense that like Truffaut and those guys, the French new wave people saw this film as teenagers and it functions as like a core, like kind of a cortex for them. Right. Like, like Truffaut literally describes, I saw this movie and made me want to make movies. Right. And those things, those movies are significant to you, right? The movies that the director sees that makes them want to do that kind of art is like, core and fun and like fundamental it's important right well nobody who's making movies now or even in the last two decades probably saw this movie and said to themselves i want to make movies because they probably were already in a film a film like department or something like that they were already probably probably pretty deep into the sort of the if you've seen it at all you're probably pretty deep into the curriculum of film by the time you see it what they show you are french new wave films they show you things from the 70s and 80s that like you know sort of like post, you know, uh, say like um, postmodernist films and stuff like that uh, is what they're going to show you, right? They're not going to show yeah. you La Antalante as a core text. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, La Antalante shows up on two top 10 lists okay. for Criterion.com. Okay. Yeah, you know, every uh, we we've encountered before they they ask a director yeah, 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 or, yeah, or someone related to film what are your top 10 films. Yes. Uh British director Mark Jenkins. Okay. And uh Italian director Pietro Marcello. Um Marcello born in 1976, uh Mark Jenkins 
also alive today, but uh, maybe a little younger. Um, Mark Jenkins. I was trying to look what, up and see how year. old he is. 1976 is when he was born. Oh, he was born in 76 as well. Yeah. Okay, both of them born in 1976 then. Uh, in any case, uh, both of them uh, put uh, Talanta on their list. Pietro Macello, number one. Uh, Mark Jenkins, number 10 on his top 10 list. Uh, both of them say, I saw this movie as a child on television. Okay. Um, Possibly something now, akin to that Truffaut documentary thing that we were watching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say, I we live in a very different world. Even even you and I being born less than 10 years after these guys. Uh, by the time we had cognizant memories of what was on TV... Something like Atalantia. <laughs> now I can't yeah, say it's, it. It's an impossible name to pronounce. Something, La Atalante. Yeah. Something like La Atalante um, generally isn't going to be shown on TV. No. It's now, I, I did. TMZ or something, maybe. Yeah. On on PBS, I saw some some the really PBS, great. Yeah, uh, that was my first exposure to The Third Man. Uh and uh, a number of other uh, you also uh, PBS is a weird F- one because you have to live in a place where PBS does that because not every PBS right 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 is the same. not every PBS does that right uh, F for fake I first saw on PBS um, Mansfield yeah. or like Northern uh, Ohio's PBS did not show you films very often believe it or not <laughs> yeah it was weird it was weird that how it how it happened every so often uh, but yeah so you know you you could occasionally get that but I think there's I think there's even a marked difference between. A television station willing to show F for fake, and a television station willing to show. No, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. Like, I uh, mean, Lan Delante is like is fundamentally going to be a hard text to sell to your audience. What I think you have yeah. to have is you have to have a a PBS sort of phenomenon where you have essentially something that's like at least borderline state funded that is interested in expanding yeah. young people or anybody the world the the the, the people's cultural understanding, right? I think it's identified as important cultural work and then it gets purposely spread through like government grants or something like that. Right. And I could see yeah. that, right. You're in, you know, I get, that was a thing, right. That's like the birthplace of those like of public television and stuff. It's just that like, even by the time you and I are, you know, old enough, like that's a, 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 a passing idea, right? Like the government no longer has a responsibility to like make its citizens culturally round human beings. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was saying that, like, yeah, these these directors, I think, are probably. But my 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 point, I think, that, that actually sort of informs my point. Right? He's on two lists, despite the fact that, like, seemingly for the French New Wave, it's extremely important text, or at least for Turfell, right. um, which might be all it needs, right? But like, beyond that, what I'm saying is that, like, we're we we've gone through enough generations, where like this is just not a foundational text for people who are making movies anymore right it is in a way right like it's through a series of lineages right like oh well i watched this person who was informed by Truffaut, and then i watched Truffaut, and then he was informed by la delante so i eventually saw it but now you're like four layers deep right so it's just not going to show up on people's lists anymore it reminds me of uh something that happened at work a couple weeks ago i think i told you about uh, I I was working the bar and I had a customer sit down who had knuckle tattoos that oh, said right, yes. love and hate. Uh, and when I got him his drink, I said, I said, uh, 
let me tell you a story about left hand, right hand, uh, which is Knight of the Hunter is where those tattoos come from. Uh, or possibly, in my mind, uh, maybe uh, <clears throat> more directly from Do the Right Thing, right. Uh, which also uses that phrasing right. uh, when, <laughs> when introducing to the, to the uh, rings. Uh, but also, <laughs> it turns out, uh, that uh, a character in um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show has love and hate knuckle tattoos, uh, and that is where he got them from. Uh, also, his response then, uh, I said, let me story- tell you a story about left hand, right hand, complete blank stare. Right. I said, oh, I like your tattoos. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, they're from uh, this movie called uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, right. and, and and that was also an insane response to me. But no, my my um, question is, I this really very serious question. It's not trying to make any yeah. judgments. How old was this person? I can't. We've talked about this story before. How old was this he? Person? He had to have been. He had to have been in his early twenties, right? Just, so, like, just by nature of the fact that he assumed I didn't know what Rocky that's what Horror I mean. It's like that's was. what I was wondering. He had like, to have been. Has Rocky Horror Picture Show undergone another sort of sort of social transformation where like now it's an obscure thing again or something like that. I don't know. Because, like, bear in mind, I when I was in college, there were Rocky Horror Picture Show nights at my college even. Right, right, like, right, right. It, it yeah. had become, it had hit enough of a pitch that, like, you you would have to be literally actually dead to have not heard about it, right? Are we back to, like, <laughs> right, it's, right. like, a bit obscure now? Maybe? I don't know. For, like, if you're, like, in your 20s, is this is this maybe now a bit obscure? Again, I don't know. I'm just curious. It's, and then of course, like Rocky Horror Picture Show gets it from probably Night of the Hunter or something akin to that, right? Right, like, right. That's, Rocky it's, Horror it's Picture Show, a, certainly. Like, I mean, it could certainly. be do the right thing because it's the wrong timing yeah. for that. So it's got to be Night right. of the Hunter. It's um, yeah. Eddie's Eddie's tattoos are definitely a reference, to right? Hunter, exactly. So that's what I'm saying. It's but, like, well, that's that's the thing, right? You're 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 right to point this idea out, right? Like you get these sort of second third hand things and and people who are interested will go digging into the to that right, right. like you will find the you can find articles you can find yeah. references to where what, things come from what is fascinating to me about this interaction is that occasionally you'll get someone influenced enough by the influence that they will change their own body right. to make reference to that influence right um you know they'll they'll see a trefoe work and want to make a Truffaut movie, or they'll see something inspired by Truffaut. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you're really probably to talking the point about of what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah, you're probably because you yeah. know, go ahead. Sorry, and, I, I do want to make another point. <laughs> go ahead, please. Yeah, and and like us, uh, don't know who Jean Vigo is, and we'll never find out who Jean Vigo is, except under very particular circumstances, like maybe, maybe watching the entirety the of the Criterion Collection from beginning yeah. to end. Right. Right. So you know, uh, it's so on the one hand. Uh, I am fascinated by uh, the lack of curiosity to find out right where these love hate. Well, but here's the thing: is like, but that's the thing, right? Is that like, why would you assume it didn't come from the thing you watched? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. The exact flip side of that is, yeah. Why would I assume that there's something something more to this? Like, unless why would I assume? Right. Now, mind you, that Rocky Horror Picture Show is, is a, right. Was that, yeah, four hundred blows is a way more like. Why would I assume this came right. from anything? Like Rocky Horror Picture right. Show is obviously like a send up of things, so you would probably assume. 
Like when yeah, I sit down yeah. at a Tarantino film, which is a thing I try to avoid doing whenever possible, <laughs> um, right? These days, I I assume that everything in there is a reference to something else. So if I want right. to, if I like. Because it's obviously a send up of things, I would be like, well, if I, this is a thing I like in this, I should just inquire where that's derived from, right? Because presumably the original text will be more interesting and more worthwhile of engagement. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show is very much the same in my mind, right? Like it's clearly making references to stuff all over the place. I should probably find out where that came from. So on the flip side, might be okay to assume you should like probably check where it came from. But uh, it's yeah. also okay to not, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with right. you just liking Absolutely. that yeah. and, like, being interested. It's just interesting. Um, the point I was going to make, though, is that um, with the sort of generational thing is that, like, you, you like, the things that you watch when you're, like, if you're going to become a film director, right, presumably the key, like, the, the, the real key time is that, like, 13, probably 13 to 18-year-old range. It's like, okay, you're going to see a movie, and it's going to blow your mind. And you're like, yeah. I need to make movies. This is a thing I need to do. Um, and that movie, whatever that movie is, is a very foundational thing. And you're going to expand from there, right? You're going to find things that are in that genre that are similar to that. You're going to find things that are different that also spark your interest. You're going to keep expanding that. But that's going to be a core text, right? And the reality of the matter yeah. is, is that your core text for somebody our age is going to be something that probably came out. It could be 70s, could be 80s. Something in that vein. Yeah. It might have come out in the 90s, but you're probably going to be talking about, with those core texts, you're often talking about something that has already been out for a while. It's usually not a brand new, fresh release movie. It could be, though. Um, but it's certainly not La Atalanta. Atalante. Like, right. it's just not going to be, it's probably not even going to be Truffaut, right? Like, it's going to be something maybe inspired by Truffaut, but you're already going to be minimum two generations removed, maybe three. It's just an interesting thing to think about. So by the time you get back to La Atalante, it's like, well, I watched a movie that was inspired. I like this movie, so I watched a movie that was it, it, that inspired it, and then I watched the movie that inspired that. You would have to have also really, really liked Truffaut's work, right? You have to have watched Four Hundred Blows and thought, "Yes, this is in line with the things I'm thinking about." Right? Like I watched this movie, which was inspired by Four Hundred Blows. Okay, right. then you watch Four Hundred Blows, and you're like, "This is also amazing." But that there's also a gap there. You probably a lot of people aren't going to watch it and be like, mm, "This is amazing." Well, that's Hard to believe 400 yeah. Blows is pretty fucking amazing. But, but but you could watch it and be like, this isn't what I was looking for. This is not – it inspired yeah. the thing I like, but it's not the thing I was looking for. So then are you going to take another right. step back to La Atalante? Now, mind you, we watched 400 Blows a long fucking time ago, but I don't remember it mentioning La Atalante anywhere. Well, yeah. Uh, but again, that was like, like a million years ago. I remember coming out of that conversation. But but 11 years ago, we know it's not. If someone had mentioned Jean Vigo 11 years ago, we'd have no context for who he was. Right. And we uh, just would have and written it no off reason, about it. Right? No reason to investigate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if any of the material around 400 Blows mentioned Zero to Conduit directly or Vigo generally or any of other Vigo's work... Uh, it would have been just another thing. Right. And the only reason material, we right. are sort of in some ways able to engage in this in this weird way is because we've just watched so many fucking movies at this point. Right. Like some of this is built on the fact that like you and I, you much more to me, but we both have a fairly broad, at least within the universe of criterion set of movies in our head that can like form connections. Right. That like, unless you're actively engaged in something pretty, borderline sinister like what we're doing here you're you're right you're not gonna have that like you go to film school right and they show you a bunch of movies and they, they try to have you draw connections there but then again 
at that point, you're being presented by your film school teacher's version of that, that they've built, and they're right. presenting it to you. It's Now it's a curriculum. Now it's a text, right? Now it's it's like this is connected to this, and this is connected to this. You're not forming that organically. You're just sort of – now, mind you, as you get older and you keep watching, you're going to – especially if you're in film, like you're going to form those connections. But that takes time, right? Like that's a that's – a, what I'm saying is it's going to take you a fucking long-ass time to get to, to uh, La Atalante is what I'm saying. You're, it's a hard road to get to La Atalante, is my point. We're talking about a, I think, when it comes down to it, an important but very, very obscure film in many ways. I might be wrong. I Maybe like it's like number, it's film number five they show you in film school. I don't know. But I, my guess is it's not. That's not the impression I'm giving. Because it should show yeah. up in a lot more lists and stuff, right? It should be more widely sort of publicly regarded right yeah and it was you know obviously it's publicly regarded enough that eventually the criterion does put a release out yeah um it must, and yeah. uh in 2001 there like, is i don't know what year this would have been yeah. 2012 or something 2010 11, 10, 11 somewhere yeah. around there yeah so a full 20 um, years after they did the remake like after they did the re the re right. um whatchamacallit Right, no, remastering. Yeah, the, I can't right. think of the word in in film. <laughs> my, my brain can't do it. I'm like remaster, but that's not right. It's not remaster. Yeah. And I suppose to a certain extent, uh, Criterion itself, uh, not that there's a lack of curiosity, but Criterion itself does not need to be interested in. This is the movie that influenced the movies that we've already released. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that they eventually do get there because um, yeah. they need to keep expanding their library. And so you start asking the question like, well, how did, why did this film get made? Oh, well, Truffaut mentioned this film as being a, an influence for him. So now we're going to make, we're going to buy this. And you can probably get right. it on the cheap. Because again, yeah. it's not a super well known. It's probably, it has no American release probably at the time. 1990 has already been 20 years at this point. You know, like. That release is what whoever owns the copyright from that release probably has passed. It's like probably passed on already. It's no longer effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Roger Ebert has a review of it. I mean, it it's like it's reviewed. I mean, it exists, but like the Google's pretty thin on it. You know, sometimes you go into Google and you type in the name of the movie with like you know in the year, and you get a pretty robust like wow, a lot of people have written about this. Nah. We pretty much start hitting the streaming sites like on like hit number four or five. <laughs> you know what I mean? You start getting into like catalogs of streaming and stuff pretty quick. Oh, apparently also there's a French letterbox. There's also apparently a French oceanographic fleet called La Atalante. So there's, that's fun too. Well, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Uh <laughs> Yeah, you you know you pick up some more. You get some like you know it, you it, they're there. I mean, there are reviews of it. Like there are like people talking about it. But like you know, it's not quite as robust as some of the thing. You know, some of the things we type in, it's just fucking like a million hits of like people talking about it. It's there, but it's just not as uh, kind of maybe as deep as you would imagine. Yeah, I want to get into the French version of the Wikipedia article being a hit on my... It's like, mm, we've got a problem here. 
<laughs> we are we've 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 crossed yeah. into like oh now we're in french the french internet never go to the french internet yeah i i'm a bit afraid frankly oh now we're in the yeah. italian internet yeah i mean I, my my point is like you know you get what i'm saying like it's not that it's not important it's not that it's not good it's just that we're so many generations deep things getting get more um nebulous the further back like because like if yeah. you look at like we don't get shown a lot of like pre-war films on this podcast and we certainly don't get like and they tend to be commercial films that again somebody famous saw like somebody important saw after the war during the war as a kid yeah. right like that's how we end up encountering these movies we don't get them as really as much as cortex but as sort of informing text to like to the cortex of film as it's understood now, right? Um, right. So it's just interesting. Yeah. I I will say uh, one other thing about modern directors uh, in in our stuff here. Um, Otari Yosiliani is still alive. Yeah, I understand. That. I, I, yeah, I, uh, he's the only example and, we have. Of, and it's not, it's not the yeah. normal kind of one that they usually do for those though. It's also, right. it's a bit different. Right. It's a bit to, different style. To show us, to show, to show us an interview with director who we haven't seen a movie from is very interesting. Right. Too. That's a whole nother uh, thing. Right. Yeah. Who we maybe never see. I don't think so. I don't, I was trying to find, him. I don't think he's in, yeah, uh, I don't think there is a criterion, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, he doesn't. It does not appear that uh, we have any criterion releases from him at all. So, uh, which makes it a bit yeah, it makes it, it even it is, weirder, right? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting choice. Um, he's a guy I'm not familiar with his career at all. It's not a name I've ever heard before that I can think of scrolling through his filmography. I have never seen anything he's done or remember hearing about anything he's done. Uh, it's, uh, he apparently is not only Georgian born, but still working in Georgia. So he has made uh, a significant number of films in, in France, right? Like that's part of the deal, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, I guess more than anything, probably he just represents an interesting story that the criterion, like, gets in the sense that like well like he was saw it in film school in the soviet union right like that's right. that's a fascinating sort of in and of itself exists as a sort of oh, absolutely phenomenon, yeah. right but yeah you're it's also worth noting yes that like we are talking about a director we have not and will not see through yeah the criterion collection yeah now i i, I feel like occasionally the criterion collection has given us X director talks about a movie as a preliminary introduction to that director uh-huh. who will, who they will later, you know, they've brought them in for this to establish a relationship with them. Right. But this was a decade uh, ago, more than a decade but yeah, ago. It was a decade ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say given, given his age in that interview, that, that was probably, uh, I don't remember what the credits said, but that was probably recorded for this it, release. It, it was 1990. So, it was filmed oh, in nineteen ninety. Oh, that was nineteen ninety. So I think it's probably oh, on okay. that D- so, that DVD or whatever that. So that was even for for, for that, that for re- the initial. Yeah, what interesting. the fuck is the word? Why is it can't I remember the word? 
What do you do to film when you fix it? I'm like refurbishment. That's <laughs> not it. Restoration. Thank you. Uh, yeah. There you go. Um, I guess he is ninety years old, so forty years forty years ago he still looked kind of kind of like an old man to me. Right, yeah, so. yeah. Absolutely. So like he you know he's it, it I think it's just a thing that the people who made that restoration thought was interesting and created. Yeah. And then the Criterion Challenge just sort of inherits that as part of their 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 release, right? As they right. do. Like we've encountered yeah. this many times. Oftentimes what we're watching when we watch the Criterion Collection version is a re-release of a version that was packaged by somebody else. Yeah, a decade before. At least right? stuff that was. Yeah, at least sometimes they add new stuff, for, but it, but it oftentimes a is a is a just sort of repackaging of of like something Janus Films made or somebody else, right? Or like the French Film Institute right. or something like that made. Um, yeah, IFC Films sometimes. You know, it's whatever. Um, but yeah, right. it's it's just um, it's just fascinating that like. No new because like when we've watched movies that were restored and stuff that recently, oftentimes we get directors. Cartier goes out and hunts down like at least one of their sort of stable of yeah directors that they know that they can call on for like sound bites to like record a right. five minute interview even or if ten it's, minute interview. Even if it's someone we haven't seen a lot from right like i feel like uh or somebody they called in got, to like pick movies out of their closet or whatever and they're like hey by the way we've heard you like this movie do you want to record a 10 minute interview or whatever about it yeah and they say i feel yes. like we've seen <laughs> we've got an olivier assayas film coming up so he's on my mind but i feel like we've seen only one movie from him but we've seen him talk about movies and bonus yeah, features yeah it's because it's a thing they that. do right they, so, they've, they've got yeah. they've got they've got a whole industry going of like they call people into their offices they 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 have them pick movies out of the the weird closet they right right which right, yeah. which always like i understand it doesn't it's probably it's got to be a big closet to have all the movies, but it always makes me look it looks so claustrophobic to me every time i see somebody in there i'm like this, scene, this feels <laughs> like a, like somebody like essentially shoving me in this closet me like pick 10 movies i'd be like I'd be like pounding, like let me out of here! Why are you doing this to me? Like why am I? Why are the walls made of movies? Um, but, <laughs> but like, um, well, that's that's because to us the Criterion Collection is a prison. Right, it's a bird to which, live we, which we'll never escape. So, it's not actually yeah. a thing we've engaged with in it's a positive way. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. like <laughs> I'm gonna go to hell, and my 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 torture will just be being surrounded by like film. Uh, it's what's gonna happen. Like, but no, like it's it's um, I don't know. It, it you would think that there's somebody they called in they could ask, but like it just doesn't seem like that exists. It's yeah. like this comes out. This release is from like what? It's probably like we're like in the 2010s, right? At this point, basically in the Criterion right. channel, like right. They've been doing this yeah. for a decade already because we've been doing this for a decade and we've just been moving a pace essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, to. To that regard, it is fascinating that uh, there's nothing new. Yeah, there's just nothing new. Disc. It's just, it's just a. a I feel like yeah. it's just like, hey, we bought the rights to this DVD that we found that like was released by this other company in 1990. Yeah, are we gonna add anything to it? Nope. Fucking pack it up. Let's go. Ship it out. Yeah, it's, it's got. It's good it's, enough. It's got what it it's, needs. It's Garmon's. Uh, restoration from 20 years prior right uh if if you're right on the date 
for that interview. Yeah, I am. I am for sure because I thought he died. Bonus stuff. Because the yeah. way they do the, the closing title screen of it, the closing title screen of it is like, this interview was conducted at this time at this place. It was like October of 1990 or something like that. October of 19, and like 19, between 1990 yeah. and 1991, October of 1991, it was recorded. And the way Plex works, it like threw, it like does this thing. It wants to be like Netflix now or whatever. And it throws the yeah. video up into the corner when it's like almost done. But the text was still showing up on screen, so it got really small. And I, and I had to watch it like four times because I was like, the way it was phrased in the subtitles seemed like maybe he died. Because it seemed like they were setting it up for like, this film, this was recorded in the fall of 1990 into the fall of 1991, right? And and then like they're like the f- end of the sentence before it switched title screens was like, right before, and I was like, Oh shit! And it got really small, and I couldn't read it, and I had to watch it like four times to be able to figure out that he didn't die. It's just like before maybe, the release of this other film or something like that. I was like, oh, okay, I see, fine. I see. Oh, maybe right shoot. before the fall of the Soviet Union. No, it, it was not. Didn't Soviet even mention Georgia. the Soviet Union. So, it didn't even mention the Soviet because no. he was in France at the time. He's speaking French. Uh, that is true. At that yes. time, yeah. So it just it just freaked me out to the point where I had to watch it like four times. And Plex kept doing it. I'm like, God damn it, Plex! I just want to know that this man is not dead. <laughs> uh, I guess I could have just gone to Wikipedia because, uh, like, it's, it clearly tells me he's not dead. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, even even Le Voyage de Atalante, the the film restoration documentary, uh, it's probably from the is from two thousand one. Oh, two thousand one. Yeah, so yeah, from two thousand. So that's like that's ten years. Oh man, I keep saying yeah. We're actually. I'm yeah, sorry. 10. I keep fucking yeah. this up. We're two we said, decades. After. We both said. Tw- Right, we're two decades the, after the nineteen ninety restoration. It's, it's well two because there's after. a there's a two thousand one film release. There's like a DVD release in right. two thousand one. Like well, 19, that's the that's that is the nineteen ninety the second version, restoration, right? So the nineteen ninety version came out, and generally people did not like what happened. So in two thousand one, uh, they brought in Luce Vigo, uh, his daughter, and uh, and someone else to uh, do another remaster. Right. And that's the that's 2001 what we release. And that's what, what we're probably Criterion then puts watching. out in in about 2011. Right. Um, T- still a decade so, later. So even that's ten years prior. But right. many yeah. of the interviews seem to be co. Like right. Like timed with that first that's, restoration in 1990. Yeah. Right. The yeah. Um, yeah. The the interview with that director. Obviously the the Romare Truffaut thing is from the 60s. Right. Um, the uh, ninety-minute French television episode that we watched is from nineteen sixty-four. Uh, so yeah, it's um, well, hmm. Okay, you you said that it ended when in nineteen ninety is what that said. The Criterion list uh, of of bonus features on their website does name uh, that interview with Otar uh, Siliani. As happening in two thousand one as well. It's but not. In it's any not case, what it says again. again the, fi- is, the film it says <laughs> yeah. itself says that it like was wrapped up in like two thousand. It was wrapped up in nineteen ninety one. I see. It probably um, came out on the well, DVD. Case, That's probably why the Criterion Collection has it labeled that. Is it probably wasn't yeah. shown until the DVD release in right. nineteen in two thousand one. Yeah. Here, I, 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 I can actually just check because um, like we have the I have the plaques. I can just. I suppose the only the only thing on here that might be 
uh, new uh, commissioned by Criterion. You're right. It does say 2001. The, I could have uh, sworn it said 1990. Yeah. That's so uh, weird. I like. I remember making a mental note about it, and then like, it says 2001. Weird. I'm freaked out now. That's even freaking me out more. <laughs> like my just a complete. Well, in I any could have sworn it said 1990. Oh well, doesn't matter. But the uh, but the one thing old. Criterion seems to have commissioned for the DVD for their release of this is that Michael Gondry one minute animated tribute to Jean Vigo. <laughs> so so they do have Michael uh, Michael Gondry in here from 2011. Well, he also made the it's cr- very the- short. Right, but they also made uh he also made the cover art. Right, 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 right. But then yes, again, he does the cover art too. it's the cover the cover art he made is this is like <clears throat> a real rabbit hole, but the cover art he made is the cover art on the nineteen in the two thousand one DVD release. <laughs> I think. I'll go back Wikipedia has it. Like it just says yeah. on the Wikipedia thing. I've actually closed the Wikipedia, I clicked on a link and it followed it through. Now I have to go back, but uh, yeah, that 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 in- very interesting cover, yeah, by Michael Gondry, nineteen ninety re release poster by Michael Gondry. Sorry, it's the poster. Yeah. So fascinating. Like, I don't know. Well, and like Criterion does usually publish that information. I don't know what Antalante's like actual cover looks like because I haven't seen it. The Criterion pages cover. I need to go to the Criterion collection. No, they just have a film still. So it's not even by yeah. him. Uh, I'm getting a headache, Adam. What I'm telling you right now is I'm getting <laughs> a headache. Well, uh, also on the Criterion channel is a work by Lynn Sachs from 2021 called uh, Epistolary Letter to Jean Vigo. It's a five-minute short. Uh, so perhaps if there's ever an updated release of the Criterion, That'll be on there. Uh, we will not only get the, the 4K version, that is now out as of four years ago, and and also maybe this as well. So, so uh, oh, interesting. So La Delante has um, the cover for the La Delante is Juliet's face staring seriously, but the complete Jean Vigo box set is her smiling. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I love that difference. Uh, yeah, but like honestly, like this is going to sound really weird and judgmental. It's not meant to be. It is a bad sign when Criterion does no cover work. What I mean is, like, when they don't commission an artist to make a cover, it's usually, in my mind, kind of a bad sign in terms of how seriously they've taken that release. Yeah. You you know what I mean? Like, when there's... Yeah, I get it. Like, when it's just a film still, it it feels like it usually means they have not taken it as seriously as they should. Not that it's not a good film. They just haven't taken it as seriously as they should. So I think that's fair. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, we've you know we talked last week how these these complete work sets that we occasionally get are always weird. They are. They're the weirdest um, thing. Yeah. Obviously, this one is at least less material than it normally is, considering he died young and only made one feature. Uh, but even, you know, the the John Cassavetes complete work set, um, 
which wasn't even Khalid Works. It was five films by Cassavetes because there were other Cassavetes outside of that set that we've seen. Right. Um, but that at least had a documentary particularly about Cassavetes contextualizing his career. Even what we have here is not necessarily that. No, the closest you know, thing we have is that is that but... the documentary of the crew yeah. and like <clears throat> we have... actors from La uh, Atalante kind of talking about we... his life. We have the source material for a documentary about his career. You're right, exactly. We don't yeah, actually have that documentary, yes. right? Yeah, um, which is fine, whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's always weird when Criterion. You know, gives us everything from someone all at once, uh, and then nothing ever again. Obviously, with Vigo, it's a little different because we don't have there is nothing else, right? Well, right. Well, and that's what I'm uh, kind of wondering is like, are we just looking at a sort of dearth of like just Jean Vigo? I know obviously there's not a lot from him, so we'll never get another. We're yeah. never going to get another DVD of Jean Vigo, okay? Like straight up because this is literally everything as far as his works are concerned, but like. One also finds themselves saying, that, like, I find myself saying, like, but, like, is this, like, all the material that exists about him as far as, like, filmed material? Like, are there other documentaries? Are there other works that have been made to talk about him that just we're not getting? Or is this, like, they've just basically scoured the world and said, like, well, this is what we've got. We're not going to make anything new. So this is this is the sum total of everything. Is... Also very, like, I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's just a thing. It's, it's weird. It freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm still happy to have watched it. Yeah, me too. I, I, I am too. I didn't like. So I, much of this is All amazing. this talk is still dodging around the fact that, like, it's a good movie. It's interesting. It is, it is avant-garde. It's, yeah. it's fascinating that, like, the sort of, like, where he is... went with such a basic, boring story. Right. To work with. Yeah. And Truffaut gets into this a little bit, but I think it's it's fascinating to imagine where he could have gone. Uh, obviously, the flip side is the the conditions of his death were material issues with his life, right? Right. So, so for him to have survived would have meant a dramatic change to who he was, in a way. Right. And, uh, and and like Truffaut does dig into this idea. It's like, like yeah. Truffaut starts like <clears throat> does a sort of dangerous thing where he's like, well, would he have done this? Or he could have done this. Or he could have done this. And it's like, yeah, like people's right. lives are unknowable if they don't exist. Like it could spiral in any direction. Like who knows if like anything he produced after this would have been worth a damn. I mean, we can guess yeah. that probably it would have been right because of the kind of person he seemingly was but how much of who he was was informed by the fact that he knew he was going to die is a thing we talked about probably a lot yeah it's safe to say uh, yeah um we need to draw this one to a close i want to end on this last bit of fun trivia from this movie the barge that they shot on they rented uh was named louis the 16th uh and if that's not itself a political choice right by john Vigo. <laughs> Uh, just wonderful. Uh, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, Louis spelled with an E at the end, which 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 is uh, wrong, uh, but perhaps purposefully so. Uh, not necessarily a mistake of whatever they're citing. Um, 
but if the boat was actually purposely misspelled Louis the Sixteenth name, uh, just extra funny. Yeah, if that's if that's why it's spelled like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, we've been talking about the complete Jean Vigo, uh, part two of the box set of his work, particularly La Atalante from nineteen thirty four. Next week. We will be talking about another film that was influential to other artists. <laughs> um, uh, instead of Truffaut and Vigo, though, it's the movie that inspired, inspired Ingmar Bergman to start making movies. Uh, Victor Shostrom's The Phantom Carriage. It'll be our first and only film from Shostrom. It's from 1920. It's a silent film. And appropriately, it takes place at New Year's. Uh, Happy New Year, Pat. Happy New Year. I know for us, actually, it's still a few weeks away. But for for this episode, it is, I'm okay it to is engage with the fiction of our, of our um, podcast. Our podcast has an in universe yeah. fiction, and that's it. That it's secretly yeah. three weeks so, from now. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, happy New Year! I hope your celebrations go well. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, Sean Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. been listening to Lost in Criterion with co-hosts The Adam Glass and John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. With the collapse of Twitter, who knows what social media we might end up at. How about Blue Sky? That sounds great. Check out the official podcast account at lostincriterion.bsky.social. Jonathan Hape does our music, and you can check out more of his work at jonathan-hape.com or on any music streaming service. And you probably should. He's pretty good. A big thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. And hey, thank you for listening. <laughs>